Welcome to the Wealthy Speaker Podcast, the show that offers you tips and strategies to help speakers build the business of their dreams. Now, here's your host, 30-year industry veteran and business coach, Jane Atkinson. Well, welcome, everyone. Today, we are having a conversation about race, about equality, about forgiveness, and about everything that's going on in the world today. It all impacts the speaking business, and we're going to talk about that as well. And, you know, we might think, oh, this is the Wealthy Speaker Podcast. We don't need to talk about this. But I think that we'd be missing an opportunity for a chance to use this platform for something positive. And I want to make sure that we have an open discussion. I could not think of anyone more fitting to discuss these matters with me than my friend, former CFL, that's the Canadian Football League, football player, motivational speaker extraordinaire, and probably one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, Orlando Bowen. Welcome, Orlando. Thank you, Jane. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm good, and I'm so, so happy to talk to you. I imagine your world is pretty out of hand right about now. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Well, we're going to start with your story. It's a big story. It's a long story. But if you'll give us the Coles Nose version, yeah. I know the story pretty well. So I'll try to fill in any, any blanks that the listeners may be asking. So the story starts, this particular story starts on a day that you signed a big contract with the Canadian Football League's Hamilton Tiger Cats. Talk about what happened that day. Yeah, so I, uh, I I signed a contract. I was excited to go out and celebrate with some of my teammates. So we decided to meet up and then I'll take one vehicle or two vehicles downtown to celebrate. I got to the meetup location first. I was excited. You know, I was, I was waiting on my teammates to arrive. I was on the phone with one of them. And as I step outside my vehicle, I look over, I see two guys walking towards me. Uh, one of the guys says, Hey man, what you got? Got any drugs? Now these guys are, you know, in jeans and and like a t-shirt, that type of attire. So I, I'm looking at them. I'm like, no. I go back to my phone call. As I'm on the phone, one guy stops at the rear of my vehicle, and and, and the other guy kept walking. The guy that stops, he says to me, "Are you sure? You sure you don't have anything?" And I looked at him, Jane, and I was about to respond to him, but then I, I was thinking, well, why would you be asking me if I'm sure? Like, I already answered the question. So as I was thinking that, I recalled that I had seen two guys walking towards me. So now I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, there were two guys. Now there's only one. Where's the other guy? I look over my opposite shoulder, and he's standing in my blind spot. Mm. Long story short, you know, these guys were uh, two corrupt undercover police officers. At the time, one of them identified himself. He said, I'm a police officer. And, and at the time, I was doing a lot of work with police services. Mm. So when he said, I'm a police officer, I was like, oh, okay, cool. How can I help you? So he's like, oh, you, you know, do you mind if we search your pockets? So I'm thinking, I, I do mind, but probably the easiest, quickest way to end this conversation is just let you search my pockets. I don't have anything. Right. So I put my hands on the vehicle. I said, yep, go ahead. They search my pockets. They don't find anything. And then, um, one guy says, okay, we're going to have to put the cuffs on you. So I said, put the cuffs on me for what? And the other gentleman punches me in my side and says, just do what you told you effing a-hole. And uh, when he punched me, his sleeve rolled up. And when I looked at his forearm, I saw a tattoo that spanned the length of his forearm that had an eagle with a dagger in his talons and blood dripping from the dagger. And all I could think was, these guys aren't police officers. I work with a lot of officers. They don't behave like this. You know, they don't look like this. I, this is this is must be some kind of setup or something. So I knocked the first gentleman's hands off me and I moved towards the front of the vehicle. The gentleman behind me grabs my jacket, which was undone. So I let my arms flail behind me so my jacket came off and then I started running. Then I hear the word, stop or I'll shoot. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, these guys are cops. I said, what's going on? Could, could you just tell me what's happening? And my question was met with fist after fist after fist and one grabbed my grabbed my uh like my upper body and he's tried to, he starts delivering leg strikes to my right leg trying to get it to collapse and 
he kept saying, I'm going to break her effing leg. And I'm saying, oh my God, what did I do? I didn't do anything. Right? And as he's trying to get my leg to collapse, all I'm thinking is, I can't let them get me on the ground if they're beating on me like this and I'm standing up. Right? So um, there came a point where one of them grabbed my arm and tried to put it behind my back. And Jane, you could imagine the adrenaline that might be flowing through my body right now in terms of the whole fight or flight. This is a time of my life where I'm probably um, one of the most athletic. Um, yeah, you're a big boy. I, I'm, you know, 6'2", 235 pounds. I'm squatting around 600. I'm bench pressing about 450 pounds. Yeah. And so when he was trying to force my arm behind my back and they weren't answering my questions, I kind of felt like I, just, I had enough and I pulled my arm away. And he, the gentleman holding on to my arm flew about 10 feet. Now, when he gathered himself, he put his hand on his pistol and he said to his partner, I'm going to shoot him in the head, I swear to God. And in that moment, Jane, all I could think was, if I establish the upper hand, I will never see my family again. No. I'm going to have to let them take me down and I just have to protect my head and, and my organs. So that's what I did, let them take me down and they continued to beat on me and beat on me. And eventually called for backup, who put me in the back of a cruiser, took me to jail, and they wouldn't let me speak to anyone. So they kept denying me my phone call. My face is busted up. I'm bleeding. There's, there's no medical attention no at all. No medical attention. I'm asking for that. I'm asking for my phone call. They keep saying, don't worry about your call. You get your call. Um, but they, they just wouldn't let me speak to anyone. And, and the crazy thing was, it was at a time where I was like the spokesperson for the police service. I was actively trying to bridge police and community. Yes. I was actually taking a lot of heat from folks in the black community because they're saying, why are you working with those guys? You know how they treat us. Yeah. And I always said, if I see something that's not right or could be better, I'm not going to complain. I'm going to put my hand up and say, what can I do? Which is what led me to getting involved in trying to help bridge the gap. And now I found myself in this incredible situation where I'm in prison, no phone call, right? So as I'm in there, you know, two guys, you know, are walking past and, and, you know, they, they asked me if I have any diseases. So I'm like, and they said, yeah, your blood, it got on a couple of our, our guys. Do you have any diseases that we need to test them for? And I remember looking at them. I just, I couldn't believe that they were treating another human being like, my goodness. I said, I said, no, I don't. And I said, okay, good. And they walked off. Hours later, uh, a, a gentleman that was walking past, you know, I asked him when I was getting to go home because I heard other people getting released. So I'm like, okay, they're not letting me call anyone. I can't even call an attorney. I can't call the chief of police. Maybe they're just going to release me like they're releasing other people. So uh, when this gentleman was walking past, I said, excuse me, when do I get to go home? He says, home. <laughs> You're not going home. You have a bail hearing. So I'm looking at him like, a bail hearing? I said, a bail hearing for what? And he says, um, don't you know what you've been charged with? You've been charged with two counts of assaulting a police officer oh and, a possess- and one count, possession of a controlled substance. And I'm looking at him like, what, like, what are you talking about? And he looks at me and says, you know what you look like, man? You look like a piece of S-H-I-T, you effing a-hole. And then he walked off. And, and Jane, I'm telling you, like, there haven't been many times where I could say I've seen hate, like deep hatred in somebody's eyes. But that was one of them. And, and all I could think was, why, like, how, how and why could you hate? You, don't, you have no idea who I am, what I stand for. How, why could you? How is it possible that you could hate my existence so much? And, I'm and flabbergasted. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was crazy. I am obviously, like most people who hear your story, uh, flabbergasted. Even though I've heard it before, I'm even more so. The the two police officers that accosted you by the side of the road, they were white. Yeah. And the police officer that said that, what you just said, uh, what your charges were, he was white? Yes. And so carry on. You were now charged with possession and assaulting two police officers. Right. So this is what I'm learning as I'm in the jail cell, right, from this officer that just it seemed like he just happened to be passing by when I asked him when I, I got to go home. So I still thought, 
that's impossible. There's no way, right? They must have me mix, mixed up with someone. Right. Um, until they opened my jail cell up and they handcuffed me to three other guys to take me to the courthouse. That's when I knew it was for real. Mm. Um, and uh, I remember, you know, getting to the courthouse and an officer, as I was walking down, well, I was being escorted down a corridor to the courtroom and an officer looked at me and he said, what happened to you? And I looked at him and I said, I, I actually, I didn't say anything at first. I, I, I just looked at him and he said, did one of our guys do that to you? Really? And I said, yes. And, and it's like, you could just, like his eyes, it was like he was looking introspectively around, like, we're capable of that? Wow. Um, he said, listen, man, please get medical attention the second you get out of here. Yes. All right. So, um, this, a, but, there was a gash on your forehead that yeah. was gigantic. Yeah. Yeah. There were, there were like, when I, when I, I finally did get medical attention was when, after I was released from the courthouse and, uh, went to the hospital with, with my wife and, and they thought, uh, they suspected a skull fracture mm-hmm. um, because of the degree to which the, you know, the bruising, swelling, the gash on my head as you, you know, and luckily it wasn't fractured because had it been fractured, I would have died in the jail cell that night. So this is such a heady story. So as it turns out, these two police officers are undercover police officers, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And they have planted something. What was the controlled substance you were accused uh, of? Cocaine. They have yeah. planted cocaine. Now you are fighting for your life on a whole different level. Right. When right. you're in the moment by the car, yeah. you're fighting for your life and you're thinking, I'm not going to see. At that point, you had how many children? Uh, my wife and I had an 18-month-old son and she was pregnant with our second son. Okay. So you're thinking this is it. Yeah. And, but, but now you're fighting for your life on a whole different level because you have these drug charges against you and talk about how long, what kind of process you had to go through. Yeah. Well, so you you think of like the, you know, how traumatic it it might be to hear the story. Mm -hmm. Um, Living it was, I felt like it was a, I was living in a movie. It just, I couldn't believe what was happening. Yeah. Disbelief. Yeah, totally. I was in shock actually, because I was just like, how, how, like, how, how do I go from being a spokesperson and touring the prison and courthouse as a guest, special guest of a judge and superintendent of police to being assaulted and a prisoner in the same jail cells that we walked past, uh, you know, f- a few weeks prior. Um, so like the, the level of irony was, uh, it was spectacular. So, so, I, and I'm there and here, here's what challenged me. When I was at the hospital, the nurse looks at me and she had, you know, these wire rim glasses and she had a clipboard with her notes and she looks at me and she says, what happened to you? And I, I, I turned to my wife and I said to her, babe, she's not going to believe this. So I turned back to the nurse and I said, I got jumped. And the nurse, just barely looking over the rims of, rim of her glasses, said, oh, by who? The police? <gasps> and I was so, I was, I was offended. I thought, well, maybe she heard. So I said, why would you say that? And she said, well, I see it all the time. Really? But uh, usually it's like teenagers or newcomers like people who don't really speak english well that's usually who it happens to so i'm kind of surprised because you don't really fit the mold and and i remember how deep that statement cut uh you know because you know i i I mean i wanted to think i wanted to hope that this level of transgression wasn't something that was commonplace Right. right. And and you also think about it from an immigrant standpoint, not that you felt that way today, but if you were new coming to this country, uh, Orlando and I, by the way, both live in Canada. We're talking about uh, things that, of course, affect everybody in North America. A newcomer coming to the country, 
would never be able to defend themselves to the degree right. that you were able to defend yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was challenged by. Yeah. Because all I could think was like, what if like we didn't have resources? Yeah. Right. Like what? Like if it was my parents as new immigrants, no yeah. chance. Right. And the other thing, Jane, was when we went to um, after we left the hospital, the, the actually, you know, after we went to um, we went to find legal or search for legal representation. Mm-hmm. And the first lawyers that we went to, we sat down and I would share the story. And it was so traumatic that I would like I would be physically sick. Oh, yeah. And I'd have to like, you know, I'd get the chills and I'd have to lay down. So I remember sharing my story and then having to excuse myself and then coming back into the attorney and the attorney says, well, I'm going to recommend that you plead guilty <gasps> to a lesser charge. And I, I was like, wait a minute, hold on. Maybe, maybe they didn't hear what I said. Why would I plead guilty? And they said, well, the system is so big. You don't want to get people upset. It's better you just plead guilty. And just hope it all just goes away. Just take whatever, you know, whatever they give you. And I said, absolutely not. I didn't do anything. So I said, well, you're not the one. So we went to another attorney, similar outcome, right? So I, we went to a third attorney and they were like, well, you know what? This would be great. You know, so you're a former pro athlete, right? Yeah, this would be amazing for our law firm you know, all the media that we could get in here. So then I'm like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> like, are you hearing what I'm saying? Yeah. You know? So I was. What about, what about the injustice? Does that yeah, count for anything? It wasn't. It wasn't. Oh, so my anyway, we, we, uh, I went to, um, you know, a friend of mine who had, had many years working in the system. And he said, you know, I'm going to see if this particular lawyer is available. They're, they're quite pricey. But they're they're some of the best, and uh, so we we went, we sat with them, we connected, um, and they said, you know what, we're we're open to taking the case, but we hope that we get a good judge. So I mm-hmm. said, I'm like, well, what does a good judge have to do with this? And they yeah. said, well, because it's not about what happened, it's what's believed to have happened, and um, and if you get somebody that's if you get a judge that is pro police. Sometimes it's not even what is believed to have happened. You're automatically guilty. So this was all news to me. I didn't realize the depth of the system in terms of its structure. When you talk about systemic racism, it runs layer after layer after layer. Mm -hmm. So, okay. I feel like we could talk about this whole process that you went through for a long mm-hmm. time, but I, we need to fast forward. So how long did you fight these charges for? So for about a year and a half. A year um, and a we half. Were, yeah, we were in the courts and, you know, it was so hard to sit and uh, listen to them, listen to the officers after seeing them take the oath on the Bible to tell the truth. And then they just lie. Yeah. You know, like just like your honor, you know, he's so big and so strong. I I was in such fear for my life. In my 17 years, I've never been so afraid for my life or my partner's life. I'll never forget those words because I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, how could you say, like, how could those words come out of your mouth? And not only did he say the words, but he said them and then he looked at me and he smiled. Like that was like that moment right there was so like chilling to me. It was like, you know what? It doesn't matter what I say. Mm -mm. It doesn't matter what I do. You're done. That's what, that's what that look meant. Mm -hmm. And, but for me, I I kept hearing the words of my grandmother um, who would say hurt people, hurt other people. And I just kept trying to imagine what kind of pain must, must he have been through to allow him the capacity to do that to somebody else? You know, so it was this, this really, in, just like, uh, like there was a deep sense of sorrow that came over me. And just, uh, yeah, I, it's, hard to, it's hard to explain. I've met, uh, I've met a lot of your family, Orlando, and <laughs> every member of your family just has this rich kindness about them. Mm-hmm. And hurt people hurt other people. 
okay, so the reason that you end up getting off of these charges is because why? Well, first of all, so the as we were journeying through it, um, and we got six weeks before the verdict, we had up to that point, it was so clear that the officers were lying. Uh, we had them testify individually so that they, you know, one wouldn't be in and be able to hear what is partner was saying Mm -hmm. um, so that they would have to, you know, speak their truth. Right. So it was so clear that they were lying on significant things, Jane, not like where was he positioned. Right. One officer is like said, yeah, my partner told me there's the drugs on the ground. The other officer said he never saw any drugs until they got back to the station, Uh (laughs) like on significant things. So when they were, they were lying like that, we reached out to the prosecuting attorney, the crown or the district attorney, and we said, they're lying. It's clear. Drop the charges. She said, absolutely not. We're prosecuting you to the end. So we get six weeks before the verdict and the arresting officer is himself arrested mm. by the equivalent of the FBI, by the RCMP, the National Police. He's arrested for trafficking cocaine. They found, you know, 17 kilos of cocaine at his house. So here's the thing, though. It, was, it wasn't made public. We had people uh, like friends of ours in media, and one of those friends called and said, you're not going to believe this. The arresting officer in your case was just arrested for trafficking cocaine. They're probably going to call you soon, right? So the prosecuting attorney now calls me, not knowing that I know about the charges. Right. right? She says, hey, Orlando. (laughs) All of a sudden, it's like this jovial, Mm -hmm. friendly, why don't you, you know what? We're looking out for you. We don't want you to have to go through the pain of the court system. It's so, you know, you do such amazing things in the community. That's what she's saying. Oh, my gosh. Why don't you just let us drop the charges? You know, there's some things that have happened that could maybe impact. But don't even worry about that. We just want you to go home and be happy. Right? So I said, you mean like make a deal? And she said, yes. And I said, absolutely not. I said, I'd rather be wrongfully convicted versus uh, striking a deal on that premise, Mm. right? Um, Because for me, it was about principle, right? I didn't want them to drop the charges and then there'd be this, well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Over hanging over your head, yes. So I wanted there to be a judgment rendered. So uh, it ends up that you are cleared of all charges. And did both of those police officers end up going to jail? No, one one was convicted and sentenced to five years, eight months in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, the other was um, they uh, moved him to another precinct, right? And changed his roles and responsibilities. He's been promoted twice. Okay, yeah. so again, back to systemic, and so yeah. that when people are talking about defund the police, the reason why they're so upset about it is because these things are happening. It's like the priests back in the day of the Catholic church, the priests would just get moved. They right, would get right. disciplined. They, they, none of it, none of the cultural problems would be shut down. Right. And that's what happened in this particular case. But I, I want to make a couple of notes here because we've, we've skipped over some parts of this story. Number one, your CFL career, your football career is now over because right. of the concussion, right? Correct. Correct. I, I wasn't I wasn't able to return to the game that allowed me to take care of my family. So you have to fight for a year and a half. Yeah. If we go forward in time, there was a moment in time where you decided you were going to forgive these two police officers. How on earth did you get there? Well, I'm, I'm so angry yeah. on your behalf. I just yeah. don't even know how you got there. I, I hear you. One of the things I realized, Jane, was that uh, just in thinking about, you know, how my parents were, grandparents were, and the thought that hurt people, hurt other people, and, and also the thought that I had, the reason why I was, you know, so passionate about football uh, was because it gave me an opportunity to serve and make a difference and to bring perspective and to bring hope. That's why I left my corporate job in Chicago. Right. Uh, so when we were going through all this drama, you know, all I could think was like, there has to be a bigger purpose to this. Mm-hmm. And when we were at the hospital and, and the nurse said what she said, in that moment, I realized that this whole thing wasn't about me. When she's saying, you know, usually it's T 
teenagers or new immigrants or people who don't speak English. Well, those were some of the groups that I was working with. So then I started seeing the faces of those people, those families. And I'm thinking, what if this was Kwame who, and his parents who just you know, came from West Africa? Or what if this was Emwe whose parents are, came from Ecuador, right? And I just started thinking, what chance would they have against the system? If they couldn't defend themselves, if they couldn't prove, like I had a proven track record of community service, right? Right. So it, I, in that moment, I realized it wasn't about me. I was still in shock. It didn't make any sense, but I knew we had to get through it to be able to give hope to people who would find themselves in hopeless situations. The forgiveness piece came from, you know, really I was at a workshop, uh, you know, I, trying to um, trying to do things that could allow me to provide for my family. And this one of my friends said, you got to go to this workshop. It helps you unleash your potential. And in it, they said, well, who do you need to forgive? Yes. And I'm like, forgive? I don't need to forgive anybody. <laughs> and, but what I thought about, and this was while we were still in court. We were actually still in the court proceedings. And, and I, what I thought about was the fact that when the officer said what he said and he looked at me and smiled, I couldn't respond in that moment because like, you can't say anything. But I thought, well, what if I could say what's on my mind, what's on my heart, what, I was, what would I say? And that's what I started to write. And that, that, as I started writing, you know, tears were flowing. And when I finished, it, you know, it was really releasing, not necessarily releasing them from the moment, but releasing myself. Right. Forgiveness is for us. I realized it wasn't even for them. It was about being able to let go of the emotion of the moment so that I could be present because I'm still here. I'm still alive. I'm still a father. I'm still a husband. And I'm still someone committed to serving probably more so now than ever before. Right. And you decided to make your life one of service so that you could share this message, share hope, and really help people. Now, can we just say something about police officers. My niece is a police officer. I've written to her during all of the Black Lives Matter um, conversations. And I said, look, I want you to know I support you. You're, you know, she's a great police officer and there are a lot of great police officers. You can support police officers and support Black Lives Matter at the same time. Can you not? Absolutely. Uh, the the reality is that there are a lot of awesome police officers. The challenge is is when those amazing police officers turn a blind eye yes. to to people who are like they're demonstrating like criminal behavior while serving in the capacity of police officers. Right. So that's the bigger challenge. Like my wife says, you know, when I asked her, like, which one of the officers are you more upset at? The one that went to prison or the one that's been promoted twice? Yeah. She said neither one of them. She said the one that I'm most upset at is the supervising officer who knew that they were lying and took the stand in their defense anyways. And that that's where the issue is. Yeah. Right? The, the blue shield they talk about. And, yeah. and that's a cultural change you know, that whole see something, say something, if they're going to see, if we're going to see progress here, and you and I could debate this for a long time, but I I don't feel like I have a, I I don't think we have enough time to even do that. But that's who I think is the first step that when the, the 71 year old man was pushed down the protester, there was a police officer that went to help him and the other one grabbed him away. That's exactly the moment of truth for good police officers to say, no, 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 there's someone injured on the ground and I'm going to help them. You know, whatever the situation there was, a lot of people say something different, but okay. Yeah. So let's also be clear that you're not suggesting that George Floyd's family or any of the families or communities that are going through this right now, Atlanta, we've got another man, you know, uh, in his car, maybe having too much alcohol, I don't know. You know, they're going through it right as we speak. You're not suggesting that they forgive in this moment. What do you think it might take? What what do you think you could say to them that would help them? Well, I mean, the, the reality is people need to feel what they feel. 
mm-hmm. right? Like people, you need to grieve. You need to be upset. Like, you know, it's not that you forgive and you're just good, smiley face, right? And and even getting there, I wouldn't even suggest that to to someone. They're they're in pain right now, right? Right, and it's raw right now because of some of the things that they've been seeing, even leading up to this, right? And it's a confirmation, you know, when it happens at the hands of the state, right? Like it's it's it sends a powerful message, Jane. It really does. Of, in terms of the value or lack of value of of black men's lives which is uh, there's so many things here that i want to make sure we we cover black lives matter means black lives as well black lives also it's not that the other lives don't matter but when you have white skin like i do it's assumed yeah it's it's that's part of the white privilege that we have yeah. been born into Right. And I think I want to go there next. But I think that people need to understand when you start posting things on Facebook that all lives matter, you're not really understanding the pain of the people who have lived a completely different world than you have lived in if you have white skin. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's like, I don't know, pouring salt on a wound. I don't know if that does it justice. Like, because when you are constantly having to navigate situations, conversations, like our son got his driver's license at age 16. He was excited. He's like, dad, I got my driver's license. I could drive to lacrosse. I could go see my friends. And please tell me where the registration and insurance is so that I could keep both hands on the steering wheel when I get, if and when I get stopped. That's like, that's the thought. Every, every parent has to have the talk. The talk. Yeah. And what age do you start to have the talk with your kids? Like 12, 13 or something no, like that? No, absolutely not. Six. Six. Seven. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we can't wait. We can't wait because, you know, they're going to see some things. Right. Because like, we thought, okay, I'm going to wait, you know, wait till I think for our, our, our youngest son, we waited. He was in grade, he was in, he was in elementary school and an article came out about the letter of forgiveness and he was old enough to read, um, but I, I hadn't shared anything. It just, it just came out. And um, with your to, story about forgiving story, the police officers, my story yes. about forgiving the police officers. Yes. And one of his friends came to school and said, I didn't know your dad got beat up by the police. Mm-hmm. And he said, he didn't. Oh. And his friend said, yeah, he did. I saw it in the paper. And, and our son, Marcus, said, no, he didn't because my dad would have told me. Uh, you understand? Yeah. You, you can't, it's, there are conversations you just, you have to navigate, one, to protect them and to help them understand so that they could be safe and make it home, but to also understand how, like, how and why certain things um, happen to us that, that maybe other folks that aren't right. black don't have to worry about. So if I'm talking to my 13-year-old grandson, I'm probably not going to have conversations with him about how to keep his hands so that the police can see them at all times if he ever gets pulled over. I'm probably not going to say that, you know, when you walk into a store, be aware that the clerk is going to look at you and be suspicious in some way. Uh, When you're trying to climb some sort of corporate ladder, it may be that you're going to have to work extra hard because your skin color may somehow limit you. These are conversations that white people, yeah, these are conversations that white people do not have to have with their children. And that, do you think that's a good definition of what white privilege is? Yeah, I think that that's one way to define it because I think we're born into that type of environment right there are systems that like don't don't lend itself to people being able to move into different spaces and have success right I, you know I, I was uh listening to a you know a podcast the other day with uh, Ibram Kendi the author of uh, a number of books around race and 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 privilege and and one of the things that was um you know that that came up was the the thought that uh neighborhoods are considered safer when there's the less 
black or brown bodies in the neighborhood, the safer it is considered. Mm, that's how they rate it. That's yeah. the sy systemic, uh, you know, rating yeah. system of right, neighborhoods. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it, I mean, it just, it, it is what it is, right? But we have to prepare our, our, our kids to be able to thrive, even in light of those scenarios. Right, right. Right. And to not judge people, but to be aware and to read the cues. Because there yeah. are a lot of cues. My friend and client, Charlotte Stallings, has been sending me things. And today, she sent me something that was, I mean, I don't know why, but it just, it bothered me on a level that was even, because this is kind of like everyday racism. Right. A FedEx driver, good job driving in his truck, in his uniform. Yeah. He's out in the country somewhere. Yeah. I don't know where this was from. Somewhere in the States. And he's out getting his uh, package out of the back of the truck. And a person in a pickup truck um, yells at him and uses the, the N-word and spits on him. And this guy's in the truck afterwards on his cell phone, bawling his eyes out. Yeah. And I think, how can we possibly understand that kind of pain? Right. We don't. We don't. And I really am trying to, you know, say the right things and yeah. do the right things. I think sometimes, Orlando, that white people remain silent because they're so afraid of saying the wrong things. And I think the time for silence is over. It's over. It's over. It's over because, you know, that gentleman in his truck, in those moments, you feel so alone, right? He's out there trying to provide for his family, right? And, and sometimes you'll shoulder it as if this is what it takes, you know, maybe it would be better for my kids or their kids or their kids. But the reality is it, it takes its toll. Right. And silence, like there could be folks that, that are witnessing those things. And, and generally mm -hmm. speaking, people don't say anything. So I encourage like I know folks are, you know, they're, they're risking, um, you know, they don't want to be they don't want to say the wrong thing. Yeah. But if it bothers you, say that bothers me and that's not right. I don't care what. Say something. Yeah. Say that this, this stuff shouldn't happen. Say something. Use your voice. Use what you have somehow, some way. Even if you say, I don't want to say the wrong things, but dang it, like, I, I can't live with that. That's unacceptable. Yeah. They, folks have to say something. I think the, um, the reason why George Floyd became the, the person that created this giant swell, he became the, the, the face of this movement right now, was tell me if this is wrong. The knee on the neck feels like maybe oppression and that that was symbolic mm. of every black person who has ever felt oppressed over anything in their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, number one, how did you feel? Did it bring up all of your PTSD from the situation that you had gone through? And would you say that that's why he was kind of the one who was chosen for this role as the face of the movement? I think there were a number of factors, right? I think the knee on the neck, the symbolism, the depth of the symbolism in that, the amount of time, yes. the, the stoic, uh, emotionless hands towards the pocket oh. or in the pocket, I don't care, middle of the day, downtown cameras rolling then what happens at nighttime right there's so many yeah. there's so many layers to it yeah right I, and and i think that like there was such a deep suppression of the human what you would say is humanity within yes. somebody to allow that to happen right right so it was know, inhuman inhuman there were people crying out the, the gentleman was saying, I can't breathe. My, everything hurts. I'm going to die. Calling out for his mom. All these <sighs> things that, that over time, like a sustained lack of humanity 
in, in its expression makes you think deeply about your own existence, right? And, and I think for, for, for black people, what, well, let me speak for myself. For me watching that, I was crying out for humanity to intervene. Yes. For something to be sparked in somebody to say, we can't have this happen. No. And, and, and then, you know, like, and that, and the, the act was so injurious, like it was felt all across the globe. Yeah. And not only that, like, even after that, you know, the reports, the report that came out before the video was made public, that said that, you know, he was apprehended and I'm paraphrasing. And then the officers noticed that he was going into medical distress. There was, <laughs> yeah. there was, there was total absolution of the fact that they, they killed him. Right. So things like that, when you, when you could watch that happen and, 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 you know, and experience that and then see what they're saying, like it just compounds the effect. And I think given COVID and the fact that it mm -hmm. made us rework the way that we do work and yeah. the way that we behave. Then what happened in South Georgia with Ahmad. Then what happened in New York City um, in Central Park. Like all these yeah. things where you're, you're, you know, for some force to experience it over and over again. It's just, it, it was just It's like much. a perfect storm. Perfect storm. I really, really hope that we as a as humanity all around the world will be better. And, and I know that I cannot, I can't relate to what it is that people go through. I live a life of white privilege. I'm very hyper aware of that. And I wanna give a couple of things that people could maybe do. And I wanna hear what you think people can do. There are some, there's a book called White Fragility. Yep. And that book was in the hands of the American Airlines CEO when he had a very wonderful conversation with a Southwest Airlines flight attendant. And I hope that if the leader of an airline takes information like that, that that could be the beginning of big change for his company. I very much hope. The, there's a Netflix documentary by Ava DuVernay called 13. Mm -hmm. There's also, if you want to start a little bit lighter, uh, white privilege. Uh, there's a white uh, conversation. Hello, privilege is me, Chelsea, I think, by Chelsea Candler. Mm. She's a comedian. And she interviews some people that are quite illuminating. And I think having conversations is also... Uh, a great idea right now. What do you think people can be doing? So, first of all, I love the, the books that you've talked about. 13th is Powerful, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Kendi is another one um, that I, I definitely recommend. We'll put um, that in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of uh, like what what people can do, right? There's, you know, I don't think you can really straddle the fence, right? Like it's either, yeah. you know, you have to pick a lane. Basic, yeah. Like really and truly it's either you're going to be willing to challenge yourself on an ongoing basis mm -hmm. to, to be an anti-racist, to challenge systems of oppression. Yes. To step up for, if you see something that that's not right, to, to stop and say, that's not right. Like you, we shouldn't be doing that. We're better than that. Yep. I feel like we have an obligation to do that. You know, and as you're, here's another thing, as you're reviewing those books or watching those movies, I invite you to have conversations with people as, as you, as you watch or as you read, right? And yeah. if possible, have conversations with African-American or, or black folks yes. as you read those things so that, because if I have the conversation with someone that has a similar lived experience as me, the lens through which I experience the stories, the lessons is going to be consistent with the lens that I've grown up with. Right. So be willing to challenge yourself by, you know, having conversations with, with people who like with black folks, African-Americans don't look like, yes. um, and, and share your thoughts and ideas and, and listen, you know, like be willing to, like you said earlier, you know, you've been doing a lot of listening, right. Be willing to listen and to hear what people's lived experiences are like. So, and then maybe look at how you can 
you know, start to connect with other people? Are your circles heterogeneous or are they homogenous? Right. Right. Are, are you, you know, are you, you know, are, do you have friends that are African-American or, or black friends or, or not? And why? Why is that? It's just being critical of yeah. how you exist in the spaces that you exist in and ask and asking why, why or why not? Yeah, I think that's really good. And I'm, I've been asking myself so many questions. I actually looked back at the lineup on our podcast and I recognized that we didn't have, we didn't have enough people of color of any, uh, I mean, we had a few, but, uh, and what I thought about was my excuse for that was, well, we choose based on topic. And so we just always went for the person whose topic we were interested in. And I, I told, I think I told myself that I don't see mm. color. Mm. And, but what that means is ultimately at the end of the year, we've got 52 programs and maybe only five of them or 10 of them would be. And I want to talk about the term people of color. Right. This was something I was educated on was that people of color right now, it's Black Lives Matter and we're talking about Black people because this is kind of where we are on that front. That doesn't mean right. that racism against all races is wrong because it right. certainly is. But what I was told is that people of color meant that you were putting everyone into one pot and that that wasn't necessarily the right thing to do. do can you address that? Well, I, I think that to your point, to your, the point you just made around like, let's name the elephant in the room, so to speak, in terms of we're talking about anti-black racism and how it manifests in, in different ways and in, in how it's systemic and evident in education and housing and policing and in the judicial right. system. Let's name it so that we can address it. Right. And, and then let's, we can move from there. But, you know, in order for us to be able to uh, be laser focused, to move the needle on something, we need to be laser focused. Yes, right? I see what you're so, saying. And, and speak to specific examples and speak to how things have been designed to lend itself to some of the outcomes that we're experiencing right now. Yes, that's good. That's a good way to talk about it. And, and I think that I'm just trying to be more aware. There has been times when I've gone up to uh, see one of my black clients, I run into them at a conference or something like that. And I'll, you know, say, Hey girl, or something like that. That may not be okay with her right. that I'm trying to somehow use her vernacular. If I wouldn't mm -hmm. have done that with anybody else, then probably it's wrong. And I'm just really becoming more, um, sensitive to where I have gone off the rails from things that I have been. And I, I know I will have said something wrong on this particular show, but I would rather be saying something than nothing at all. And that's yeah. the choice right now. When I know better, I will do better. That's a quote from Maya Angelou. And I am very much trying to do better. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And I think, I think that's a call to action for all of us. We have, we have to do better. Now, I think we are going to see a tremendous, what I see for our speaking community, Orlando, is opportunity. Yeah. I think that more companies are going to recognize that they have had a lot of middle-aged white guys up on their stage. <laughs> we call them mogs. We even have a name for them. <laughs> uh, when I used to work for the Speakers Bureau and I'll apologize to the middle-aged white guy, that's offensive. Yeah. But they got so much of the pie early on when I was uh, in this business 30 years ago that they actually got their own, their own name. So women have had to work harder to get their piece of the pie yeah. and uh, minority speakers, definitely. So I think what we're going to see is a, um, a wave, which means that everybody is going to need to work harder to keep their share of the pie. Yeah. What do you think you see coming in terms of the speaking industry? And have you, do you think you've ever been discriminated against? Well, I, I sometimes take uh, the discriminated against as a, uh, you know, I, I don't claim that card often. Yeah. Okay. But sometimes when I see certain things, it doesn't surprise me because it's a comfort level thing. Yes. Right. People want to be comfortable and sometimes being around me, 6'2", dark skin, bald-headed, chocolate, my wife would say, <laughs> um, 
you know, doesn't make people as comfortable as other folks. Who right. Don't look like, right. So, right. so I, I understand, you know, it, it is what it is. But when we have an opportunity to shift, we need to shift because the, what you miss out, if you don't, if all the voices that are here that can contribute, that can make a difference are being muted or aren't even having an opportunity to step in the space, we all miss out. Right. Everybody loses is how I yeah. see it. Yeah. I think there's opportunity here. I think the diversity inclusion conversation is going to be huge inside corporate America, corporate Canada. I want to put a shout out in for my client, Deb Shaw. She is a Latino woman, former um, vice president of global diversity and inclusion for PepsiCo. She is so smart and she can very much inform that discussion from the corporate side. So I hope if there's any bureaus listening, they will uh, take a look at Deb Shaw. Orlando, I believe that you're going to have a very busy year, my friend. And I'm, I'm excited for you from that perspective. Yeah. I'm so very, very sad that it took all of this to get there. But I do believe that there is new opportunity on the horizon in our industry as a result of all of this. Mm-hmm. Then I'm I'm grateful to be able to serve. As you know, you are you are an awesome teammate and coach. Yeah, so I'm I'm excited to be able to contribute and move the needle on these possibilities because that that's that's what's called for right now. Yeah, and possibilities are on the horizon, and I really hope that we do see change. Well, thank you, Orlando Bowen, for being here with us. And so, with that, we will say. See you soon, Wealthy Speakers. Bye for now, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Wealthy Speaker Podcast. If you need help building the speaking business of your dreams, head over to WealthySpeakerSchool.com and take advantage of our 20-minute next-step call. Thanks for listening to the Wealthy Speaker Podcast.